del Águila. Next on Fiesta. Fiesta. Thursdays at noon on Radio St. George 100.3. If you haven't purchased a parking permit, you can find one online at parking.dixie.edu or from the cashier's office in the Holland Centennial Commons building. First floor. You can't miss it. So come on down and pick up your parking pass today. Oh, yes! <laughs> on March 23rd, the DSU Theater will be performing The Wake of Jamie Foster, a sad story that will explore who Jamie Foster was and who he met through his life. The performance will start at 7.30 in the Echoes Black Box Theater. General admission is $10 and $1 for DSU students. We're not always here, but email is a great way to contact us. RadioStGeorge at gmail.com. A request, a comment, an idea, or more. RadioStGeorge at gmail.com. Alexa, play Radio St. George. This is KDXI St. George, Radio St. George at 100.3 FM. And we now present to you On the Arts, an hour of discussion and discovery about the arts in St. George and Southern Utah. And now your hosts for On the Arts, Michael and Christina Harding. Good afternoon, St. George. Hello. As was said, this is Michael Harding. <laughs> and this is Christina Harding. And we're here for On the Arts, that show that is dedicated to blowing the lid off of mm-hmm. all the least little artistic secrets we have here in Southern Utah. Yes. We we're want back. them to be secrets yeah. no more. We're no more secrets. Oh. Right. <laughs> now, um, we, we actually have a fantastic new introduction there. That was Sean Denovan, who actually runs this radio station. Mm-hmm. And we're all excited. We've got a real formal format. I can't believe- Believe this, we're it's growing. We're we're becoming famous. How's this happening? And I have to say, we right? actually got ratings. Ratings. Uh, in, in, <gasps> we've been joking about how we were happy to just be in double digits yeah. as far as people listening. Apparently, there are a few more. We want to thank all of thank you for you. tuning in. Yeah, we're glad you're tuning in on this after on these afternoons at four o'clock. And I want to say <laughs> that if you want to check out video mm-hmm. of what we look like, and maybe not even what we look like, but what our guests look like, yes. You can yeah. check us out on Radio St. George. Mm-hmm. That's Radio Space ST Space George on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And you'll not only have a live feed, we are feeding to Facebook right now, but this show will also be archived. So you can go to that page on Facebook or you can go to On the Arts with Michael and Christina Harding mm-hmm. on Facebook and you can see our show there. It will be archived. We will share it. And who doesn't want to see us? Absolutely. I want really? to see us all yeah. the time. Mm-hmm. I click on it and say, Very hey, entertaining. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I like it best when the camera's pointed towards you. You're the pretty oh, one thank of you, the yes. two of us. And I think it's interesting that we watch radio now. Absolutely. When did this happen? <laughs> right? Yeah. Remember the days we just turned it on, we wondered what they looked like behind the microphone. Now we know. I was always on the television. I never. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah. I never listened to the radio unless I was in the car. Uh, yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. and that's what there was. I remember we had a host in Washington D.C. where I grew up, and mm-hmm. his name was Carl Haas. Haas. And he actually hosted the classical music Haas? station Haas. H O S S. Isn't that uh, a character on Gunsmoke? Uh, Gunsmoke Bonanza. Mm-hmm. Bonanza. I think. Bonanza. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you see, I, I would watch television. Uh, yes. and I knew oh, that's that. That's true, yeah. You're still back on, what is it, The Shadow, yeah. The Future, yeah. as it used mm-hmm. to be, and yes. things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was Carl Haas, and I loved how he opened his show. He would always he would have his little musical intro, and then he would say, Hello, everyone. I will <laughs> never forget oh, that. Oh, we should start doing that. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> We, we always joke about how we're going to be Delilah here in Southern Utah. Uh, if you don't know who Delilah is, that's okay. If you do, I apologize I for the reference. Delilah. But anyhow, uh, here we are with On the Arts. We're mm-hmm. trying to make sure that everybody knows the multitude of mm-hmm. opportunities that are down here in Southern Utah, not only here in St. George, but in Cedar City, mm-hmm. for people to be audience members, mm-hmm. uh, to experience the art displays and exhibits mm-hmm. that are around. And also, this is the part that I'm the most proud of or the most intrigued by, I should say, the opportunities that people have to be involved. Yeah, oh, always. Mm-hmm. And wasn't it, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut that had this wonderful, wonderful quote <laughs> about how just go out there and, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, I'm not 
pretending to be as eloquent as Kurt Vonnegut. I'll pretend. Go but ahead. I will. Hello, hello, everyone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he said something akin to just create, write a poem, write a song, learn an instrument. Do it. Even if you don't mm-hmm. think it's very good, the fact is you're creating something and mm-hmm. expressing something. Mm-hmm. And how wonderful is that? Yeah. We all need to be doing that. It would save us money on therapy if we would just all create more, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and and I do have to stress, just because I know some of my students actually listen, I, I cannot stress mm-hmm. this enough. Art can be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Yes, yes. So uh, please, yes, please feel better by listening to music and by doing theater and watching theater and going and experiencing paintings and sculptures and such. But please but know, therapists do please have a reason. Please go get help, yes. yes. Great. Now I feel guilty for what I said. Thank you. Uh, that's, there's a therapist there's a that therapist can help for you that. with guilt. <laughs> <laughs> or you could just listen help. to Beethoven. Yes. <laughs> but anyhow, we, we do have quite a bit going on here in Southern mm-hmm. Utah. And you actually just closed the show. I did. Well, and Deborah was there, too, our lovely yeah. guest today. We yeah. just closed Sylvie out at Kayenta. Gotcha. And how did that go? I Very well. I believe we sold out every night. Am I correct on that, Deborah? Uh, the second weekend. Yeah. Second weekend, yes. We sold out, and it was a great, great run. And only, only two weekends, and it's over and done. We rehearsed for four weeks, and then... Two weekends, and then we're done. Now we have to find our lives back and wonder what do we do with our time and wait for the next acting contract to come our way. Well, you know, my my favorite quote about that is the only happy actor Mm. is the actor who's on the plane to their next job. To the next contract, yes. So if there's any jobs out there, I'd really... (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's it's so funny when we, uh, as actors and performers, we talk about how, oh, we're so tired. Oh, I just want a break. And then when, of course, the break comes, we think, oh, I just want a job. I just want to be on the stage, yes. I remember just a few years ago, uh, it was for a play called The Merry Wives of Windsor (laughs) at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Oh, that little play. Yeah, that that little ditty that that he wrote. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's not too far off the mark as to how he wrote Mm -hmm. it. But it it wasn't this past production last summer, but the one, oh, five or six summers ago, I'd say. And we had a wonderful actor named Matt Zambrano. Uh Ah. A hysterical, hysterical guy. Mistress Page. Mistress Page. And uh, anybody who saw the production, maybe you'll know what that is. But I remember we were backstage, and what they do there is, of course, they're putting on six shows at once. They're rehearsing those shows and getting ready to mount them in addition to the green shows. There's a lot going on. But we were backstage in an afternoon rehearsal. And what they do is they have a four-hour rehearsal in the afternoon for one show and then a four-hour rehearsal in the evening for another. And, of course, the, the shows are overlapping each other. And it was about, oh, gosh, I don't know, rehearsal starts at about 1. It was about 4 o'clock. We get done at 5. And he was backstage just saying, oh, I can't believe it. I am scheduled for seven hours today. And several of us just looked at him, another friend of mine named John Preston, who was an actor there. He just started laughing. And he said, you do realize most people work eight-hour days. (laughs) (laughs) Poor baby. And he he brought up the fact as well. He just said, do you know how many actors are out there right now wishing they had any project Uh, going at all? Yep, yep. uh, Waiting tables. Mm -hmm. That became our joke Mm -hmm. all summer of that, Mm -hmm. oh, they're asking us to work. Oh, my gosh. Poor thing, yeah. But uh, we we do have a lot of fun doing those shows. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you were saying that now you have to find your life back. But in preparing for Sylvia, that took Mm -hmm. a lot of time getting into it, didn't it? Oh, yes, a lot of hours. Yeah, long rehearsals and a lot of dedication and a lot of wonderful people to work with. That's Mm -hmm. how we met our guests today. I was so fortunate. And you meet these great people along the way that become your family and friends for life. But it was was a fun, fun show. And and Kant is still... They've got more shows coming up, so people need to go to their website and check it out, the Center for the Arts at Kanta, and see what's going on out there. They have some beautiful, beautiful productions coming up soon, so... And we also have this week a production oh, coming up that I'm quite little... close to. Yes, and I'm just a little bit close to you too. What Absolutely. is that, Michael? It's what? The Wake of Jamie yes. Foster. And there was I was actually pleased to see before our show there was a, a commercial yes. for this. Yep. We're becoming so legit at this oh, show. We're it's so wonderful. Real. Yeah, this Thursday, but opening the, night. The Wake of Jamie Foster, I do have to let people know mm-hmm. that there is some language involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some mature situations involved. It does deal with a funeral mm-hmm. and it deals with uh, family relations that happen happen with a funeral. And in this one, I don't think it's giving anything away Mm -hmm. to say that the title actually has a double meaning, which I love about Mm -hmm. playwrights. And we're segueing into Ah, talking to our guest today. Uh, But several times you'll look at the title of a play and you won't realize how clever they're being. Mm -hmm. With the wake of Jamie Foster, of course, the literal 
translation mm-hmm. of that title would be the wake that they hold with the coffin and you know people mm-hmm. can come and they can pay their respects and such that's a wake a literal wake but i actually had a student point out to me this was last semester that that's not quite what the title means the title is actually talking about the wake of Jamie Foster, as in the wake that's left after a boat goes by. And you look at the consequences of this man's actions. And what I think is so wonderful about it is you have people who gather to honor this person. And you come to realize throughout the play, it's a lot more complicated than that. This man may not have been all that popular. Well, and our and our audiences need to understand, too, this is educational theater. You have chosen this play for a reason. Would you care to explain why you chose this play for your students to perform? Oh, absolutely. I know there are a lot of musical theaters uh, uh, around here, Mm -hmm. a lot of musical theater productions that go on. There are a lot of comedies that are presented, and it's actually rather rare Mm -hmm. down here to find a drama that is specifically chosen to be a drama. And this particular play is a style that I think every actor Mm-hmm. needs to know, needs to experience. Of course, there's a lot of money to be had in this business if you can sing and you can dance and you can act. That's called a triple threat. I've had a lot of fun telling people that I'm a triple irritant, not a ah. triple threat. <laughs> uh, I can move to the side of the stage I'm supposed to move to. I can hold a tune in a bucket and I can act. I consider myself to be quite a fine actor. <laughs> Very fine. Wow. Check us out. Yeah, he's on a true Facebook. actor. He just, yeah. <laughs> but, but singing and dancing, that's not my thing. And uh, there are a lot of actors who make their bread and butter by being in musicals and such. So that's certainly a skill they need. Mm-hmm. But in a show like this, it's about really honing that dramatic actor craft, mm-hmm. being able to create a relationship with another person on stage. And really, this phrase gets overused a lot, but really feel it. Mm-hmm. Really be a part of a piece of theater that's bigger than themselves Mm -hmm. and a story that's bigger than themselves. A phrase that I'm really uh, very fond of is life is real, theater is more. (laughs) And uh, the reason being because life is ordinary. Everything happens every single day. But theater really explores those things that aren't necessarily, Mm. uh, shall we say, appropriate to explore every single day. These emotions that we don't necessarily want to feel every day, these depths that we don't want to experience. And that's one of the wonderful things about theater is you get to explore them in a safe way and hopefully become a better, better's a, a dangerous word, mm-hmm. but become a deeper person or a more understanding person or understand a relationship that perhaps you haven't before. So choosing this play, it's not as well known as this particular playwright's mm-hmm. other work. The playwright is Beth Henley. And she wrote a play that's very, very popular and very Mm -hmm. often done, Crimes of the Heart, Mm -hmm. as well as a whole multitude of other plays. I I highly encourage you to check out all of her work. Mm -hmm. And and she's still writing today um, Mm -hmm. with with a new play, I would say, every other year at least. And she's actually cranking out quite a few. But uh, The Wake of Jane Foster is a lesser-known play, but it has these wonderful, rich, rich characters that we chose here at Dixie State University to use as a platform for our actors to really dive into something. Mm -hmm. They do not have the safety of a musical score behind them that can help Mm -hmm. them create the emotion. They don't have the safety of spectacle and dance and such. What they have is a really raw, truly gritty Mm -hmm. script Mm -hmm. and some characters that might be hard to take, but they have things to explore. And that's why we chose it. And we do hope that when people come to see this, we don't want people to leave devastated and hating life and such. Oh, yes, we do. Well, (laughs) (laughs) only artists like us. Only artists. But we do hope that they leave having had a cathartic experience, having had a safe opportunity to experience Mm -hmm. emotions. And I'm quite excited. I think this production is actually quite a fine production. And... uh, we all have productions that we really like, and I've been very proud of a lot of productions. This one's special. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to say that one, and mm-hmm. that comes along every once in a while. And, of course, there are many other things going on here in southern mm-hmm. Utah. Mm-hmm. We encourage everybody. We are more than happy to reveal these secrets, make sure people know. But we also hope that people will be encouraged to keep their own ear to the mm-hmm. ground, uh, keep searching out these opportunities And hopefully, if we've done our job right here on the show, we'll have piqued some interest Mm -hmm. in some things that are happening. Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to say we we are very honored to have in the studio right now a wonderful guest. Now, I always do a little monologue, a little monologue. I do a lot of talking on this show. 
but a little monologue that segues into our personal relationship with the guest. Now, you mentioned that she did just stage manage the production yes, of did. Sylvia. Yes. So she's very active in this she community. She knows me very well now. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> but I'll say, th- this is when we do the Wayback Machine. Oh, here 21 we years ago. When I was uh, a, a young, you a burgeoning baby? actor, oh. yes, uh, no, a little older than a baby. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, shall we say, agedly challenged now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I oh. was at the Utah Shakespeare <laughs> Excuse Festival. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> She's putting you in your place right now. <laughs> oh, Deborah, you just hit thirty. You know it. <laughs> but I was. They have a series at the Shakespeare mm-hmm. Festival, and it used to be called the uh, New American Playwrights Project (NAP). And I was involved with a lot of these, where they would bring in a playwright and. They would have the playwright have an opportunity to have professional actors yeah. read their plays. That a director start workshopping their play, and I did a play twenty one years ago. <laughs> I don't even remember the title. I went back through the archives trying to find this, but it was about a guy I didn't know anything about. A guy named Joe Hill, and I I'm not from Utah. I'm a coastal guy, and <laughs> and I wasn't a member of the union at the time, so I didn't really have an understanding of how unions had begun, how unions were used. And this was a play that intrigued me about this guy, Joe Hill, who was raised as a, not so much a martyr, but as a hero and a driver of the unions and such. And I felt like I was very well educated there. Well, there are all sorts of cycles in theater. And, for example, a cycle that's coming this summer is Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was done the same year I did this play about Joe Hill. And, of course, that's being brought back to the Shakespeare Festival. But two years ago, back in 2016, almost three years ago, (laughs) I was involved with the new play project, which is now called Words Cubed. Mm -hmm. And there was a playwright who I was somewhat familiar with, Deborah 3D, and she brought a play about, you guessed it, Joe Hill. (laughs) And uh, it was wonderful to have thought about this for almost 20 years and to have it uh, cogitating. Mm -hmm. That's my playwright coming out, my inner playwright. Thank Mm -hmm. you very much. Talking about uh, a character that I, not a character, but a real life person, a new perspective on this. Now, that is my sloppy segue into <laughs> saying hello to Deborah Thiridi, a wonderful playwright, yes. a wonderful stage manager, as we know now, mm-hmm. and also a former professor of law. Welcome to the Welcome. studio, Deborah. Thank you, Michael. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here, yeah. Michael, Christina. Yes. So, Deborah, I, I do have to ask you, looking back over your plays, and I've been dying to ask you this. <laughs> um, you have this wonderful, and I'm an actor, I can't just ask a simple question. It, you have a wonderful juxtaposition, uh, if I may say, between law, something that you've devoted a lot of time to and have a profession within, and also writing plays. And I notice a lot of the plays that you've written have to deal with aspects of the law. There was one about the FLDS uh, mm-hmm. uh, situations that have been happening over the last few years, the 400 children particularly. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we go historically. You've got uh, Portia in Merchant of Venice looking at her experience with the law and some other issues as well. How have you found it molding these two parts of your life. Mm-hmm. It makes absolute sense to me. Um, I mean, I, law is all about rationality and um, analysis. Um, theater has its own kind of analysis and its own kind of logic, but it's much more about emotions. And emotions tend to be cut out of law. We tend to pretend they don't exist mm. um, and that they're not important Uh, Although, of course, they are. So for me, it's like melding the intellect and the heart, um, the rationality and the emotionality. Um, It it makes absolutely perfect sense to me. And I would miss having either of these in my life. Hmm. But Mm -hmm. there are certainly some wonderful plays out there. That got me interested in law, 12 Angry Men, which is tremendous about the jury. Yep. Mm -hmm. First uh, full-length play I did. Really? Obviously, it wasn't 12 Angry Men. It was The Angry 12. (laughs) (laughs) The Angry Dozen. The Dirty Dozen. Yeah. But I did notice as well when I was looking back through your bio, doing a little bit of research, Mm -hmm. trying to dig up the Mm -hmm. dirt. No, Mm -hmm. just looking at your bio. (laughs) That you actually did uh, acting and directing when yes. you started out in undergrad. 
Yes. So what drew you to the world of playwriting? Mm-hmm. Um, I've always, um, throughout my life, it seems, I've, I've written plays, not very seriously, until um, 2002. And that year, I had written a one-woman play uh, and was performing it. And it was um, funded by the Utah Humanities Council. So I got to um, take it all around the state. I actually brought it down to Dixie. I performed it at Dixie. Um, I took it up to Logan, you know, just all over the state. Um, And while that was going on, I came to the realization that I was enjoying the writing process more than the performing process process, which surprised me. Um, I mean, I loved being an actor, but for some reason, that is less important in my life now, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in 2008, I made the huge mistake, from my perspective, I hope not from the audience's perspective, of uh, performing a major role in a play I wrote. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Uh, That was uh, emotionally a very difficult experience, and I have no desire to redo it (laughs) in any shape, form whatsoever. Oh, what play was this? Um, At at the time it was performed at Plan B up in Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. It was called The End of the Horizon. But it had actually been part of NAP 10 years before um, the Joe Hill play back in 2006. And when it was uh, read at NAP, it had a different name. It was called Nemo 1934. Mm -hmm. So, I remember hearing about that. We didn't come back to the Shakespeare Festival until I think it was 2008. So that was a little before we got back. Mm -hmm. But I remember hearing about that one. Mm -hmm. It's why do you write these plays are you just exploring these questions about the law that uh, that make you curious yes I, I think every playwright writes a play to explore or answer a question they have um, the that the end of the horizon was um, the first full-length play I finished it wasn't the first full-length play I started but, <laughs> but it was the first one I finished um, and it uh, Everett Roos I had heard about when I first, uh, the play is about Everett Roos, who is sort of a mythical, well, he's not mythical, he was a real person, but he's achieved mythic status, particularly in uh, the Utah environmental community. Uh, oh. SUA has a, uh, their logo is actually um, uh, uh, a silhouette of him and his two donkeys, his two burrows. Um, so I'd been intrigued by him um, and had been thinking about him. There, there had been a, a documentary produced about him that I had seen, and so I was thinking about him a lot. And uh, I actually sat down one day, and 48 hours later, I had a play. 48 hours later? 48 hours. Um, and it was actually an experience. I didn't have a name for it then, but it was called automatic writing. I felt like somebody was sitting in my head dictating the play to me, and I was just oh. writing it down. It was a a very strange experience. I've not had it uh, since. Um, but I guess that was wow. the shove the universe needed yes, to give me. You're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're exactly, going to write. Exactly. <laughs> so when you say 48 hours, were you writing 24, I can't say 24-7 because it was only 48 hours. But uh, I did go to bed. Okay. I, I, you did I, sleep. I did sleep yeah. um, a little. Did you eat? And I ate. But the, the rest of the You just kept writing. I was just there scribbling. That's right. I always admired one of my absolute favorite authors is Michael Crichton. Mm-hmm. And I read all of his books for the last 20 years and, you know, was sorry to hear that he passed. But one of the things I learned about him is that he would have this idea for a story and he would do all of his research, his scientific research. Most of his books had right. something to do with yeah. science and such. And then he would go isolate himself in a cabin and he had his place that he wanted to write. <laughs> and usually he'd write his books over six or seven days. And of course, that was the sloppy copy. Right. Initially, but that's how he would do it. He would form the ideas in his mind, and then he would just go put them on paper. Yeah. Sounds like you had a, a Michael Crichton moment there. Yeah. <laughs> now, I guess it was. Deborah, are you from this area, or are you from up north? Um, actually, I'm from Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. So. Uh, 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 lived there until I went to college. Went to college in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, after college, uh, I went to Rochester uh, 
uh, Michigan, uh, Oakland University used to have a certificate program called the Academy of Dramatic Art. Ah, um, yeah. And I went there for that. And it was actually while I was there that I had this um, crisis of faith is what I call ah. it. Uh, not in the biblical sense uh-huh. of, of faith, but um, I lost faith in my ability to do theater. And actually, it was there that I made the decision to go to law school. Interesting. <laughs> so, and then went to law school in Chicago, lived and worked in Chicago um, until 1986. And that's when I came out to Utah. And I've been out here ever so since. So what drew you to law? What was it about? Um, I'm a third generation lawyer. So it kind of, uh, my grandfather was a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer. One of my brothers is a lawyer, mm-hmm. although he followed me. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, well, I am fascinated to find out how you have traversed three worlds that fascinate me. (laughs) Of course, we have the artistic world with the playwriting and such, also the legal world, and also academia. Are we going to a commercial? (laughs) We are going to a commercial break right right now. We'll be right back, yeah. More with Deborah 3D after this. Howdy folks, this is Dave Smith, host of Ozark Highlands Radio. We were visited recently by none other than the great bluesman Taj Mahal, and this week we'll devote most of our show to the music of this iconic performer. I will, however, take Tom out for a trip down to the vault, where the ever-suave and debonair Mark Jones has found a recording of John Prine singing on our stage back in the day, this week on Ozark Highlands Radio. Ozark Highlands Radio, Sunday nights at 10 on Radio St. George 100.3. The music you hear on Radio Dixie 91.3 is brought to you by Festival Sounds. Providing music and sound for weddings, parties, school dances, marathons, outdoor events, sound and lights, video screens, and equipment rental. We are your wedding and event DJ. Festivalsounds.com Dixie State's Teaching and Learning Conference is happening March 29th with keynote speaker Dr. Matthew Sanders, author of Becoming a Learner. Dr. Sanders, as well as Dixie State's own faculty and staff, have submitted a wide variety of presentation topics, so make sure to be there. For more information, go to dixie.edu slash annual teaching learning conference. This is Dr. Robert Briggs inviting you to join me this Sunday as I share some of the best sacred music ever written. This week on Sacred Sunday Mornings, 19th century European sacred music. This Sunday at 8 a.m. and noon on Radio St. George 100.3 FM. This is David Martin with your Radio Dixie Calendar for Tuesday, March 19th. At 8 a.m. there is a Women's Islam Gallery at the HEC building. At 10 a.m. there is a club's tabling located at the HH Watt. At 10 a.m. there is a DSU Sears Dixie Invitational Art Show and Sale located at the Echoes building. At 12 p.m. there is a Dixie Art Forum fine art painting located at the Dunford Auditorium. At 2.30 p.m. there is a club council meeting located at the Gardner Building. At 3 p.m. there is the LGBTQ weekly meeting. And at 5 p.m. there is the Spring Luau Dance Practice located at the We Do Building. And that's your daily calendar here on Radio Dixie under 1.3. Tune in for Early Music Now, Thursdays at 11 on Radio St. George 100.3 FM. Welcome back to Radio St. George 1.3 with On the Arts. And now your hosts, Michael and Christina Harding. And we are back. Are we, we are back. There we yeah, are. There, there we, go. we are. We're back. <laughs> All right. We're, we're back here with Deborah, Deborah 3D, uh, a wonderful playwright and also a former professor of law at the University of Utah and also just an all-around great person, <laughs> I would have to say. Thank you. Now, I I do, as I mentioned before we went to the commercials there, have a great curiosity of how you have married these three worlds. You've got, of course, the world of art and theater with playwriting. You've got the world of law, which I find absolutely fascinating. And you also have academia, a world that I am not Mm -hmm. sorry to say I don't get at all. (laughs) So tell me, you have these three wonderful careers that have worked together. How have you balanced all this? 
sometimes not very well at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Theater was and remains uh, my first love, um, and I'm happy to be retired from law uh, and law teaching so that I can get back to doing theater more than I was. I, I never really totally gave up theater. And in fact, when I was a young law professor, the dean pulled me aside one day and told me I had to stop doing shows um, until at least I was tenured. And uh, I thought that was very unfair. I Mm -hmm. was unmarried, single, no kids. Um, When my colleagues were spending time with their, you know, families, I was with my theater families. Uh, But... um, Discretion took over, and so I didn't do another show until after I was tenured. And then I went back to doing shows. Good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but as I said earlier, law and theater to me are two sides of a, a coin. Um, trials are very dramatic affairs, uh, although most of law is not at all dramatic, uh, but, but trials are. Um, and they share the dramatic art arc of a play, mm-hmm. and that there's a beginning, a middle, and always an end. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so th- that made a lot of sense to me. And when I was in law school, everybody was saying, oh, you have a background in theater. You have to be a litigator. You must go into litigation, uh, be a courtroom attorney. Most a- attorneys, by the way, don't spend their life in court. There's a subset of attorneys that are called litigators who do spend their lives in court. And because of my performance background, people were pushing me to be litigators. What I rapidly realized once I was actually practicing law was that litigators truly are hired guns. They are hired to fight somebody's battle. They are fighting all the time. And I want to emphasize that all, all the time. I am incredibly confrontation adverse. This was not a good fit. I mean, at the end of, yes, I have all this performance background, but at the end of a play, the audience doesn't stand up and say, you win, you lose. <laughs> it's not a zero-sum game. Law is a zero-sum game, huh. especially litigation. So I actually hated being a lawyer, oh, um, which really? is how I went from being a lawyer, practicing law, um, into academia, which... The more I thought about it, was and it was, it was an absolutely perfect fit for my personality. It balanced uh, the performance. I mean, teaching is a lot more like acting than being a lawyer ever was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. To this day, I say the best acting I ever do is in front of my classes. Yeah. Exactly. You are on, you know, yeah. um, as well as giving me not only the opportunity, but the incentive to lock myself up and write. And as I said, that's always been important to me as well. So mm-hmm. um, I loved being an academic. Um, I was a little over 30 years at it before I decided to retire. But huh. the pull of theater just kept getting stronger and stronger. And it's, ah. I wanted more time to write plays. Yes. So. Yeah. That's, that had to be hard. I mean, all three are very time-intensive careers. They are. Um, and you mentioned that you had a dean when you were younger say, you've got to give up the theater at least until you have tenure. Yep. I'm, I don't mean to trivialize by any means, but have you seen the movie All of Me? Yes. With uh, Steve Martin yes. and li- the, the indomitable Lily Tomlin. Yep. Yep. And there's th- this wonderful scene where he's trying to be a serious lawyer, but he also plays jazz. Yep. And I think <laughs> it, it's wonderful when he walks into the lawyer office. I'll never forget. It, it, this was my first time being affronted by someone <laughs> needing to choose. And the boss just said, look, when you're willing to give up bebop, then we'll give you a chance here. And yep. I think that that seems to be a prevalent attitude out yep. there of mm. you can either do one or the other. Yeah, there's there's an old... Uh, saying um, gender inappropriate these days in law, but it's law is a jealous mistress. Um, And it was, Mm. you know, they are. They're all very time-consuming ways to spend your life, which is another reason I'm enjoying retirement because um, I'm not doing anything full-time anymore, so I actually have (laughs) time (laughs) to do whatever it is I feel like doing. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. What are your goals with your plays? You've done a lot of readings at Plan B, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm assuming a few productions as yeah. well. Yeah, most of the plays I've had produced have been produced at Plan B. Not all of them, but um, actually um, I had a play produced down here. I think it was in 2011. Uh, Man of Two Productions, the same company yeah. that just did Sylvia, mm-hmm. uh, produced a play of mine called Underground which also had a, a legal tie-in. It was inspired by the FBI Blanding raid for against mm. artifacts dealers and Native American um, items, uh, and, and that was the inspiration for the play. Um, so... Um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> We're going all the way back to marrying all this. Uh, you, you've had several plays read at Plan B. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and several productions. Yep. And for our listeners, what is Plan B? Where is this located? Plan B Theater is um, one of um, several performance companies that occupy the Rose Wagner Center in Salt Lake City. Um, they share, there are, I think there are five different companies. They're not all theaters, but they share the space there. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and Plan B um, is more than 20 years old. I know that. Uh-huh. It's, it's been around for mm-hmm. quite a while. It's committed to doing socially conscious um, theater, and um, it's really pushing for um, – diversity in a very meaningful way. Um, their current production that is, uh, I think it's, I don't think it's opened quite yet, but is called Of Color, and mm-hmm. it's uh, for um, different people of cover, color have written short plays yeah. that are put together for the evening. Oh, wonderful. And yeah. on April 3rd, <laughs> Plan <laughs> B, um, uh, they're going to be doing a reading, a public reading of one of my plays called Balthazar which oh. uh, is the name that Portia took on when she pretended to be a lawyer and went to court in The Merchant of Venice. Yes. Um, so if you're up in Salt Lake, do come by. Uh, tickets are free, but you do have to get a ticket and is make a reservation. Is this a one-night only performance? It is. It oh, is a one-night only. So April 3rd. 7.30 on April, Wednesday, April 3rd. Wednesday, April 3rd. Yeah. And is, it, is this a play that you've recently finished? or No, it's actually a play, I think I finished it in 2012 or 2013. It's just, it's been having a hard time finding a, 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 a production, a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It, it's um, certainly... Time-wise, it's a little different than my other plays. I mean, it's set at the same time that mm-hmm. Merchant of Venice is set uh-huh. um, in Venice, uh, you know, high Renaissance. Um, and it's basically what's happening in Portia's life in between the scenes that you see in The Merchant of Venice. Oh, and it was inspired by research I was doing for law and literature, one of my interests, my legal interests, and I was rereading The Merchant of Venice, and the thought popped into my head, I don't think that the day that Portia goes to court is the first time she cross-dressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And people was, out there who don't know Merchant yeah. of Venice are saying, what is this play? Yeah. <laughs> like in so many of Shakespeare's plays, and, and, and again, a little mini history mm-hmm. lesson, at the time Shakespeare was writing, women were not allowed to perform on stage, so women's roles were all played by men. Mm-hmm. And as a result, Shakespeare often wrote plays where the women in them then pretended to be men for a variety of different uh-huh. reasons. Um, so it, it's all built in gender <laughs> confusion is built into Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do play with that as well. Oh, so. fantastic. Well, you said that you don't have a production yet of mm-hmm. Balthazar. Uh, but I've been really fascinated how there is a huge market right now in America for companion pieces Yes. To Shakespeare. Mm. There is. I mean, there's mm-hmm. Shakespeare is one of the most produced playwrights, certainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got that whole no royalties thing going on, <laughs> mm-hmm. which makes it very palatable to do financially for theaters. But a lot of theaters, particularly like the American Shakespeare Center in uh-huh. Virginia, yes. Yes. they're actually putting out a call and offering some pretty nice rewards for people who present their plays. They are. Uh, that are companion pieces that come from these Shakespearean plays. Yes. Have you considered something like that? I have. And in fact, um, Balthazar, as I wrote it, was a two-hander. 
It's just Portia and her cousin, Bellario, who you never see in The Merchant of Venice. Oh, but at yeah. one point, she says, uh, Portia says, I'm going to go visit my cousin, Bellario, his, who's a lawyer, and he's going to coach me on what I have to do, and I'm going to borrow his judicial robes, you know, to go to court. Uh-huh. That's the extent of the reference to Bellario. But um, I build out a whole relationship between Portia and her cousin, Bellario. Um, for the, the, the companion piece, it needs to have at least 10 actors or, or 10, yeah, 10 actors. For a company of 10 to 12, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm busily in the process of sort of rewriting Balthasar to add in oh, other characters yeah. <laughs> to see if I can get it done. And I think the, the deadline is in June. So. so now at this reading on April 3rd, uh, is there audience feedback after they there read is. play? Yeah, there is. Oh, always. That's yeah. fantastic. And yeah. so, and, and you'll be present there? Will I will. you be attending yes, this? Oh, I will. fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah it, it is. Um, Jerry Rapier, who is the artistic director of Plan B, um, has done a fantastic job of encouraging and supporting local playwrights. Um, Plan B sponsors a monthly playwrights lab. There are about 12 of us. It, it shifts over the years. Uh-huh. Um, I've been involved since the beginning. And um, we meet roughly once a month, uh, read somebody's plays. Jerry arranges to have actors there to read the, the play and uh, the other playwrights in the room and dramaturgs. He also invites oh, dramaturgs uh-huh. and uh, give feedback on the play. And it's an amazing group of people. They are so kind. They are so supportive. <laughs> Nobody tries to rewrite your play. Um, they they try to figure out what it is you're trying to do, and then try to offer suggestions. Uh-huh. To, you know, and the rule is we start with everybody has to say something they like about the play, and then after everybody said what they like about the play, then you can offer your constructive criticism of. of Oh. Of the play and it's it's wonderful i don't think people realize and a lot of i know especially around here i've had people when we've done our second act uh new works festival we had a lot of questions people were what is that why why would you read a play you know they want expected you're just you know be putting a show up you mm-hmm. know and yeah but they don't realize the process that's that's involved when yeah. you write a play you have to hear you have are to these hear working? it you have to hear it other than the voices in, in your, your head, head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah those voices could be wrong at times. So. Although, although yeah. one of the reasons why I like being a playwright at this point in my life more than I like being an actor is that when I'm a playwright, I get to play all the roles. Ah, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They're all my roles. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> so. I think it's fascinating how characters become like friends. And I know that's very mm-hmm. cliche to say. But they become very important mm-hmm. to you as the yep. as the playwright. And yes. yep. when you talk about the feedback that the audience gives, I know I've been very tempted sometimes after the I like this about the play to say, okay, we're out of time. Thank you very much for, <laughs> yeah, right. for sharing. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost... Don't I, hurt my baby. Yeah. I don't, have you ever had a, a situation where it was almost a personal affront when they say, well, the mm. character wouldn't do this or... Um, um, no, I actually have not had that experience. Um, I mean, I don't always agree you know with with people's comments mm-hmm. um i'm entitled not to agree but it's always very interesting to hear uh how people are responding to your work and mm-hmm. and what it is that catches them and what it what it is that doesn't catch them and you know sometimes i just say well that's on them you know mm-hmm. they, they didn't like it fine doesn't yeah. mean it's not good doesn't mean it's not what i want to do with this play but mm-hmm. um you know, so I really, you know, I haven't felt personally affronted by mm-hmm. uh, comments on, on my babies. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we call them our babies. Yes. Yes. So when you write these plays, do you write in order to have pieces that will be produced? Or do you write almost as we were mentioning earlier that art can be therapeutic, but it mm-hmm. is not therapy? Do you write to express, to explore? Is that always on in the back of your mind, I need to write this commercially? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, I've had, uh, well, I, I don't even know the number of plays I've had produced at Plan B because uh, there's been a whole slew of 10-minute uh, plays that they used to uh, produce, um, and I never kept track of them. Uh, but uh, Plan B is a very small theater, 
both physically and financially. Um, And as a result, uh, they just cannot... uh, Plan B couldn't do Balthasar if it had 10 to 12 actors. They just, the theater isn't big enough. Uh, it, it seats 66 people. Oh. Um, it's a little tiny black box theater. Um, and they don't have the finances to be able to pay 10 to 12 actors um, to do a show. So I'm aware of that when I'm writing a play, that if, it, if it's going to be a candidate for Plan B to produce, I've got to limit um, the characters and and. Twice I've pushed Jerry to his limits, which are six. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I uh, much prefer four. Four. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, an audience member stands up that you've planted and starts saying the line. Yeah, right. <laughs> have a happening occur there in the theater. Yeah. Actually, do you have any plays that you are? I know a lot of playwrights are very superstitious about this, but do you have any in the works right now that are particularly juicy for you? I do. Um, I have, um, I, I always, and I did this also as a law professor, I don't like to be working on one thing at a time, so mm-hmm. I always have several projects going so that if I get stuck on one, I can shove it in a drawer for a while and just turn my attention, <laughs> you know, to something else. Yeah. Um, the play that is closest to being finished right now um, is called Thicker Than Water, and it's about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Oh. And I wrote it because when I moved down here, I knew vaguely about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, mm-hmm. and I knew it was someplace down here. Um, shortly after I moved in, I was out for a drive exploring the neighborhood and discovered I live less than 10 miles from the site of the Mountain Meadow Ah, Massacre. mm -hmm. So I kind of thought that was the universe giving me a little (laughs) clue, a hint. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in doing the research, I found all about uh, Juanita Brooks, who was, um, at one point, she was dean of women here at Dixie College, back when it was a college, uh, a lifelong uh, St. George resident, mm-hmm. um, and an amazing historian. And she is the first person who wrote about the Mountain Meadows Massacre um, in, in any other than sort of a salacious uh, way. I mean, mm-hmm. she... It was a subject for serious history, and she did serious historical research about it. And her book that she wrote is still um, the the linchpin, the 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 book that everybody, if you're going to research it, that's where you start. You start with the work she did. Oh. Um, and the more I uh, read about her, the more fascinated I got with her. So. Um, the, she ended up being a character in the play. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you ever find yourself constrained when you're writing about historical events and such? Find yourself struggling to stay true to the story? No, I don't. Uh, I mean, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. And and I have some unwritten rules for myself, which is that um, I never contradict anything that is known to be a fact. When I am writing, and and oddly enough, didn't set out to do it this way, but it's happened. Most of my plays have been about real people and real things that happened, um, and and so I never change anything that is known for a fact. Mm-hmm. But of course, there are lots of things that are totally unknown, and I feel totally free to invent. Um, you know, for the conversations that were never recorded, that people don't know what was said. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other times where the historical record is not clear. And so some people say this happened and other people say that happened. And I feel free to choose uh, between those. So it is a constraint, but most writing is constrained by something. I mean, think of a sonnet. I always point this out, you know, very strict rules about what a sonnet is supposed to do and how it's supposed to be structured. Um, And sometimes that structure is actually what allows you to spark creativity to because you have to find ways to say something new and exciting within the existing constraints. So I liked dealing with the constraint of um, this is what we know happened, but what about this? (laughs) This piece of it, this part of it. So. 
That's right. I, I know you have to sometimes be free. I think it was Whistler, uh, who, of course, people will know as Whistler's mother. Right. Not <laughs> as Whistler's mother, but right. having painted it. And one of my favorite stories is when he was explaining one of his pictures, and it was not a landscape, but of a harbor, mm-hmm. I believe. And somebody looked at it, and they said, oh, well, you know, there's no buoy there where you've painted a buoy. And he just said, oh, that was an error of nature. I was happy to fix it. <laughs> I, I, I think sometimes as playwrights, we, I know I have to struggle with that yep. of... What really happened? What do we know happened? And, oh, what do I think should happen should here? Happen. Yeah, yeah I, I do have to, in the process, at some point, um, ignore what I know happened and what I know what people said and allow myself the freedom to play around with it a little. Otherwise, it just comes out across as very stilted. Mm. Um, and and um, so, yeah, it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I imagine that was a challenge with Joe Hill as it was. well. What it drew was. you to his story? Um, I guess one of the things th- that is behind a lot of the plays I write are um, instances of social injustice and um, the desire for social justice. Um, I, and I always and I always say this: I don't know whether Joe. Hill committed the murder of the grocer and his son that he was uh, convicted of and executed for. I don't know if he did it, in fact, how nobody knows, except nobody alive knows. However, as a lawyer and law professor, I do know that his trial sucked big time (laughs) and was very unfair. Um, And he did not get a fair trial. So uh, I don't know if he was innocent, but I do know that based on what happened at the trial, he should have been found not guilty, which is not the same as innocent. Right. So that's that's what drew me to Joe Hill was um, that the legal part of it is actually pretty interesting and fun to, to look at and take apart, as well as the theatrical side of it. Well, and I do have to ask you as well, now that time is running down, <laughs> just a little bit to get to know you, Deborah. I understand that you raise horses. I don't raise them, but I do have to take care <laughs> you of them. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you raise their expectations. <laughs> so, is that yep. something that you started just here in Utah, or have you been a lifelong um, equestrian lover? I have I have been horse crazy since I was a little kid. <laughs> But um, it was never the right time or the circumstances were never right to have a horse. And I hit one of those big milestone birthdays, the one with the six and the zero. Beautiful. And actually that morning I woke up and a voice in my head said, so are you going to get horses while you can still ride them? (laughs) And three months later, I bought my first two horses. I like the voices in your head. Oh, absolutely. You need to pay attention to them. Yes. (laughs) Well, I would say, as is always the unfortunate case with this show, time runs out, and uh, we actually are at the end of our time for today. Uh, Christina, who do we have coming on? On Thursday, we have Lindy Butler. She's a local uh, musician and composer, and she has a new uh, CD coming out that she would like to promote. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we hope you'll join us on Thursday and every Tuesday and Thursday at 4 p.m. for some more secrets being revealed. And we hope until then, you keep your focus on the arts. (laughs) You've been listening to 